0: Come on, find a seat, come on down, and uh, I'm aware one or two of the parents may still be checking their children into the Christ Central kids, that's fine, they will join us soon, if uh, anyone is just uh, standing by the entrances, you may just want to encourage them back in, that would be great. So my name is Mark, I'm one of the uh, leaders here at Christ Central Church, it's great to have you here with us this morning, it's been a good morning already, and uh, we've been hearing from God. And uh, I'm going to be going back into Mark's gospel. Um, gospel of Mark is uh, what we were looking at actually for probably a couple of years, maybe not maybe, a couple of maybe into two years, uh, up until last summer. And then we took a short break. Well, it was going to be a short break for the summer, and then it became a longer break because we did our series on This Is Us and who we are as a church. And so it's, uh, it's high time that we got back into Mark's gospel, and we left uh, Mark at the end, of Mark's Gospel at the end of chapter 10, and uh, just as Jesus and his followers, uh, his disciples, and a crowd of people were heading up to Jerusalem, and they were going to uh, be going there for the Passover and the last week of uh, what would be end up being the last week of Jesus's life. So we're going to read most of chapter 11 today. Uh, we're going to split it into two parts: uh, the first shorter part, and then. We'll look at the second part. So we're just going to read verses 1 to 11 at the moment. You can follow it in your Bible, so you can follow it on the screen here as the guys move it along. So chapter 11 of Mark's Gospel says this, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Fuji Beth and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt there which no one has ever ridden untie it and bring it here if anyone asks you why are you doing this say the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly they went and found a colt outside in the street tied at the doorway as they untied it some people standing there asked what are you doing untying that colt they answered as Jesus had told them to and the people let them go when they brought the colt to Jesus they threw their cloaks over it and he sat on it Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches. They cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus and his crew get to the outskirts of Jerusalem, to a couple of towns a few miles out, uh, Fuji, is how you pronounce it, if you didn't know, and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. And uh, at this point Jesus instructs a couple of his disciples to go and get an animal which he can ride into Jerusalem on. It was a pretty common thing at the time for a king or a ruler to ride into a city on an animal and Jesus was coming as a king in the line of David um, but instead of choosing to ride in on some sort of war horse uh, or powerful uh, animal as a king might have done Jesus decides he's going to ride into the city on a colt or which is a small donkey and uh, Matthew's gospel explains a little bit more about this. Um, Matthew's gospel was primarily addressed to the Jews. And he explains that this fulfills a prophecy that was in the Old Testament, a prophecy that was in Zechariah uh, verse 9, chapter 9 and verse 9, which says this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what Jesus is actually doing as he's riding into Jerusalem is he's fulfilling the prophecy that Zechariah uh, prophesied quite a long time before. Mark doesn't mention this. The reason Mark doesn't mention it is Mark's writing to a Gentile audience. It's a non-Jewish audience. There wouldn't be a lot of point in Mark saying that to his readers because they don't know the Old Testament. They don't know the scriptures. Um, it's worth uh, bearing that in mind sometimes and realizing why, as we read the Gospels, sometimes we'll say, well, there's, a different, there's different details that are given by the different writers. Well, the reason for that is there's a different audience that they're both writing to. So, Mark's primarily writing to non uh, Jews, uh, and Matthew's primarily writing to Jews. And so he's always making that connection back to the Old Testament. You'll notice there's lots of Old Testament quotes in the Gospel of Matthew. Anyway, Jesus is uh, coming into Jerusalem as king. He's not doing it the way that people would have expected a king to come in. Um, in 2002, uh, the queen um, came into Fredericton. I don't know how many people were here. Did anyone see the queen in Fredericton in 2002? A few few people, <laughs> not many, one or two. And uh, Apparently, she flew into Fredericton on a Canadian Forces Airbus. Um, She didn't come in on the Air Canada flight from Halifax, um, (laughs) which is about 12 seats, there's no room for your luggage, um, anything else like that. That would have been quite a shock, even in an airline, if the Queen had decided to come in on that flight. No, she flew in on an Air Canada Forces Airbus. Um, That's that's what kings did, that's what queens do, that's what important people do. They come in in a big way, big entourage, lots of show. Jesus doesn't do that because Jesus is coming to fulfill the Old Testament prophecy, but also to make the point that he's coming in meekness and humility. Yes, he's the king. He's got majesty about him, but he's coming in meekness and humility. And Brent spoke about that last week, didn't he? he Jesus, How Jesus humbled himself, how he made himself a servant even though he was God himself. There's a meekness and a gentleness about Christ. He comes as a lamb, a lamb who's soon going to give his life as a ransom for many, who's going to give his life to forgive sins and bring people to God. But as we'll soon see, that isn't the only way that Jesus comes. So the disciples bring Jesus the colt, and uh, as Jesus continues his journey into Jerusalem, many people start to spread their cloaks on the road, other branches uh, cut in the field. They put them in front of him. Uh, Those ahead of him and behind him are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And uh, you might notice that Mark says that these are the people, really, it's the people who are traveling with Jesus, all the, all the crowd who are coming with him, who've traveled from, um, from Galilee, they're the ones who are doing this. It's not the people in Jerusalem uh, themselves who are doing this. These people have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They might not fully understand uh, what that means. If you look at Matthew and chapter 21, and again, Matthew's account of this, Matthew's chapter 21 and verse 10 um, you can tell that actually the people inside Jerusalem have no idea who Jesus is. Um, it says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? So there's quite a, you know, quite an entrance, but people don't really know who Jesus is. The people who are traveling with Jesus have got more of an idea. So this isn't the same crowd that a week later were shouting out for Jesus to be crucified, sometimes people say, oh, what a change in a crowd. First, 1st they're ch- uh, cheering uh, for Jesus and saying, uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna. And then a few days later, they're, sh- they're shouting for him to be crucified. Well, it's almost certainly not the same crowd, I- even if it was. <laughs> even if it was people from Jerusalem, uh, it probably wasn't the same group of people anyway. Um, so... Um, so that's how Jesus came in. He came in, and he came in low, and it, it wasn't even that big an entrance, according to Mark. Um, in your Bibles, it might have a title saying the triumphant entry. It's not, not overly accurate. Jesus' as entry to Jerusalem was pretty low-key, according to Mark. He'd not a lot of crowds there accompanying him and pressing in. Uh, he's probably more anonymous on that day than any uh, time that he'd been for a long time. Um, Mark says he entered the te- Jerusalem, he looks around the temple, and then because it's late, he and the twelve go back out of the city, go back to Bethany to stay the night. It's a pretty quiet entrance on the whole into Jerusalem. All is pretty calm and quiet, but it's the calm before the storm. So let's read on in chapter 11 and see what happens. From verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it wasn't the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. He wouldn't allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and doesn't doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you've received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. All right. So what's going on here? This this seems totally crazy this doesn't even seem like it's the same Jesus that we had the day before the day before Jesus is coming in and he's not coming in with some great big show of power he's coming in lowly and meek and riding a donkey the second day the next day it it looks like we've got Jesus on a really grumpy day like a really grumpy day I don't know if there's a phrase here but there's certainly one in the UK which says he got up on the wrong side of bed is that a phrase you have as well yeah it sounds like Jesus got up on the wrong side of bed that morning. I mean, first of all, he's heading back to Jerusalem, and he's hungry, so he spots the fig tree. He <laughs> spots a fig tree, and it, it's got leaves on it, so, but he'll know it's not the time for the fruit. He'll, it's not the time, and, and Mark points it out, it's not the time that fruit would have been on the fig tree. Um, so he goes to check it out, and he sees that there's only leaves there, and he curses it. And he says, may no one ever eat from you again. I mean, I've met some people who, when they need food, they get pretty hangry. <laughs> <laughs> Our children have been like that at times. Uh, many of us might get like that. But, but this, this seems like Jesus having a really bad case of being hangry. I, he's like, w- what is going on? Uh, and the passage, I- it just seems unreasonable, doesn't it? You, you read it, you think, this just seems unreasonable of Jesus. says, oh, he said it, his disciples heard it. Hmm. It must have been pretty loud. And the next day, the fig tree has withered. So Jesus has done a miracle. But, it, but what sort of miracle is it? It's like a, a pointless miracle, it appears like. What sort of miracle is that? Jesus is petulantly, maybe, it appears, cursing a fig tree. I mean, why curse it? Why didn't Jesus just do a miracle and command it to bear fruit? And then, like, if he'd fed the 5,000, he'd fed the 4,000. So why is he doing that? And it's, it's not as though Jesus could, couldn't handle being hungry. He went for 40 days in the wilderness without eating or drinking. So he's, he's not eaten for a little while, and he's, he's cursing a fig tree. And the disciples mention it the next day to Jesus when, he's, when they're going back into Jerusalem again. And, and it seems Jesus is still kind of talking and doing crazy things. The disciples say, oh, look, this fig tree, it's, it's withered. It, you, know, you, you cursed it and it's withered. And Jesus starts talking about, well, if you, if you command a mountain to throw itself into the sea, it will do. And you can imagine his disciples thinking, what are you talking about, Jesus? Why would we command a mountain to throw itself into the sea? That's a pointless thing as well. I don't get it. It just seems a little crazy. Many people have struggled with this passage. Many commentators, people who write commentaries have struggled with this passage and said this just doesn't even seem like Jesus at all. But immediately after Jesus curses the fig tree, he goes into the temple area, and immediately he starts turning tables and money changers over, and benches of people selling doves to sacrifice. He drives people out. He's stopping people carrying merchandise through the temple courts. And again, you might be like, hey, what's going on here, Jesus? This is violent stuff. Flipping tables over can be a scary thing. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I still remember um, when I was at school uh, as a 12-year-old, as a my English teacher was annoyed with something and he picked up the desk of someone uh, sitting right in front of him and he f- flew the table up and it flipped over and landed upside down on the desk of the person next to, <laughs> next to him. And the whole class were just like, whoa, this is crazy. It was pretty dramatic stuff. I don't think teachers can do that these days. Um, Jesus, Jesus, uh, it was the eighties, um, John's gospel, when it's talking about Jesus driving people out of the temple, talked about Jesus using a whip. I mean, it's pretty violent. I mean, pretty violent. There would have been a lot of shouting. I mean, there's a lot of people there. There would have been some resistance. And in the end, Jesus drove people out. And he stops. I've got to stop coming through here. Like this is one guy. So he's he's going to be pretty dramatic, and violent. This isn't the gentle, mild Jesus, meek, that we've just seen coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. And it's just a few verses later. He's not so much a lamb as he is a lion. And that's because that's exactly who Jesus is. Yes, he's meek and gentle. Yes, he's coming with humility, but he's coming with perfect justice, and he's coming with righteous anger like a lion. And when we think of Jesus, we have to hold the two in tension, Jesus the lamb and Jesus the lion. He's both. He's the lion and the lamb. In fact in Revelation, the book of Revelation, we see those two things very much in tension in Revelation and chapter 5. and I've, on the screen there's just a few highlights of verses, but Revelation 5 uh, and verse 5 says, uh, says this, this is vision that John's having of heaven And he says, uh, one of the elders said, "See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is ob- able, to open the scroll and its seven seals. There's this scroll and people have been saying, who is worthy to open the scroll? And it's like, never fear. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He's able to open the scroll. And then straight away it says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. And it describes the lamb. And then it says, he went out and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the lamb. Each had a harp and were holding bowls of incense. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation. So who is worthy to take the scroll? It's the Lion of Judah. And then we look. And it's the Lamb of God who died and was sacrificed for the sins of the world. There's a passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, when Lucy and Edmund come to a grassy green area with a white spot in the middle. And as they get closer to the white spot, they see it's a lamb in the middle of this field and they sit and they eat a delicious meal that the lamb is cooking. He's cooking a breakfast of fish. He gives it to Lucy and Edmund and they begin to talk about how they're going to get to the land of Aslan. It's an allegory of heaven. How are we going to get to heaven? And the lamb starts to explain the way and, uh, and then the book says his snowy white flushed into a tawny gold and his size changed and he was Aslan himself, towering above them and scattering light from his mane. C.S. Lewis, when he's writing that passage, when he's writing that book, is explaining that the lamb is also the lion. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Gentleness and meekness are in Christ, but also are regalness and the ferocity of a lion. This saviour who died for us is the same saviour who will return to judge the whole earth. He will return in judgment. In Revelation chapter 6, just go on to the next passage, and it speaks of Jesus coming in his wrath, or God's wrath. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 16. They caught This is kings of the earth, the princes and everyone else. Hiding, hiding in caves, and they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us for the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand It talks about the wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God. Jesus will return, Jesus will judge again. So what's really going on with Jesus in this passage in Mark's Gospel? He isn't just having a bad day he's demonstrating who he really is and he's actually challenging what's going on in the temple not only that he's actually challenging the whole thing about the temple jesus isn't just overturning the table tables he's overturning everything about the temple it's important to remember what the temple was. We've looked at it a few times over the last few months uh, about the temple. The temple was the place where God's presence was manifest and where God resided. If we trace the story of God from the book of Genesis, we see Adam and Eve there in perfect uh, relationship with God. He's, he's there. His presence is with them in the Garden of Eden. But then they sin and they're barred from the garden, not just from the garden, but from God's Presence and a flaming sword bars the way so that they cannot get back in. We're barred from God's presence. That's how we are. We're separated from the presence of God because of sin. Sin keeps us away from God's presence. But even then, back in the Old Testament, God begins his work of restoration. And so, uh, one by one, different individuals come to know something of God and his presence. Abraham does, and then Moses does. And then, as we go through into the book of Exodus and into uh, some of the earlier books of the Bible, we see how a, a tabernacle or a tent was erected, and that's where God's presence was manifest. That's where God came in power. And so, we hear, we read of in Exodus 33, I think it is, of where Moses used to go out and meet with God in this tent or this tabernacle. Joshua's there as well, and he's like, he stays there even because he just enjoys the presence of God. So that's where God's presence is. And in time, eventually, a temple was built, and that temple was the place where God's presence resided. There was the Ark of the Covenant there as well instead of it being in a tent or a tabernacle david said we need to build something much more glorious than just some tent we've got to build a temple and it was very uh, ornate and it was amazing in how it looked and there's all sorts of jewels and everything and it took years to build david pretty much funded it solomon his son built it and there it was the temple the place where god could be worshipped and the place where the very manifest presence of God was and as you got further and further into the temple the more you became aware of God's presence but only the high priest was able to go into the holy of holies and he was only able to go in once a year to offer sacrifices on the day of atonement the presence of God was captivating like Joshua I want to stay here but it was also overwhelming and terrifying. We read in in Isaiah of uh, Isaiah himself in Isaiah six, where he there's the presence of God, and he s- and he falls on his knees and he says, "Oh, I am so unworthy. You know, I, I'm not even worthy to live. Take because because I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of the King. This is who God is, majestic in in presence and power, but also terrifying in His awesomeness." And holiness, but that's what the temple was, and then the temple was destroyed. God's people sinned, and as punishment, God sent his people into exile. They went to Babylon, and the Babylonians destroyed the temple. I mean, it was horrific—the temple, the very place of God's presence—and God's allowed it to be destroyed. And and the people were in a foreign land, and they're living in Babylon. But then, seventy years later, they came back into. Their land, and they started to rebuild the temple. And so you read through the books of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah, how this temple starts to be rebuilt, and and they're, they're wanting to see God, uh, God's glory return. Um, but even as it's dedicated, um, there's people who are who are, are weeping, and some people who remembered it because they're like, it's not like it used to be. The presence of God, the glory of God, had departed. The Old Testament says. And so some people were weeping because of that. So when Jesus, I mean, and then that temple was, was it was smaller, but it was added to by Herod, King Herod. Uh, and uh, it was still being built when Jesus was around. And when Jesus visited, Herod was still finishing off building it. And so when Jesus entered um, with, his, with his disciples, it, it might look pretty impressive. It might look pretty impressive from the outside but Jesus actually saw beyond the surface. He saw beyond all, the, all the, 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 the show, like the fig tree had the show of leaves, but he saw beyond that. He saw there's no fruit in it. There's no substance to it. It looks good on the outside, but there's no fruit. And instead of encountering the presence of God. When Jesus walked into the temple, what did he see? He came into the court of the Gentiles. That's people from all nations. And in this huge 35-acre section, he saw what amounted to a very busy, noisy bazaar, like a market. Far busier than the Boyce's Farmers Market before Christmas. And there was a lot of trade going on and exchanging of money and, uh, and buying of animals and doves, lambs and doves, um, because it was, it was there for the sacrifice of what needed to be done. It was Passover time. The Sadducees, the religious group, they're kind of supervising it all. But there's all these doves and lambs to sacrifice. A Roman hi- that, sorry, there's a Jewish historian, Josephus, and he recorded that in AD 65, this was a few years later, there were around 255,600 lambs offered for sacrifice at Passover. Because families would have to go and they would have to buy a lamb and they would then offer it to be sacrificed for the forgiveness of their sins. Uh, and this was, this was what happened. And 255,600, and they estimated, Josephus estimated, that around 2.7 million people were in Jerusalem that year for the festival of Passover. Can you imagine how busy and noisy it would be in this court of the Gentiles? How it would be incredible. And people also had to come to the temple to pay their temple tax it was a shekel they had to pay that was what it said in the old testament but of course now you've got the romans there and the romans have got their own currency so people don't uh, buy buy and sell in shekels anymore they have the roman currency but they can't offer that at the temple because it's got an image of the emperor on it. So there's no way that they're going to offer uh, and give some money with an image of a false image on it. So what they had to do was they went to the money changers, and the money changers would exchange their Roman coin, uh, Roman currency, for a shekel or the equivalent of a shekel uh, at the time, and they would make a bit of profit on it as well uh, as as they did that. And so they're making money out of worship of God with this fee that they're charging. So there's all sorts of things going on, but it's like a business as well. People are seeing, oh, well we can we can make a profit out of this. And and we might think, well, that's outrageous. That's outrageous that worshipers are, are taken advantage of. But it's not entirely uncommon. It's not entirely unlike some things that even happen today. I was just looking on the Internet even this week, and there's worship events that are are being put on, but there can be uh, increasingly a focus on merchandise and profit making. The, the tickets for this concert we were looking at, uh, the extra $30 and you could get your picture taken with the people who were leading worship. And it's like, well, what are we doing here? We're, we're paying $30 to have our pictures taken with the people who are supposed to be leading us into the presence of God and pointing away from themselves, but we are we making worship leaders celebrities it it can become a little dangerous thing it's also suggested that the people were using the court of the gentiles as a as a a shortcut a thoroughfare through the temple and it says that jesus stopped them carrying their merchandise through i don't suppose they were wearing baseball hats and t-shirts with the with the logo of the high priest on it but whatever that merchandise was jesus stopped them walking through with it Jesus is burning with holy anger at the whole thing. He's saying this is supposed to be the area where Gentiles can worship God. There's other areas where the Jews can go. They can go and worship God. And here's a whole area of the temple which is set aside for those who are not Jews. But they're supposed to come and worship God. But how can you worship God when there's lambs everywhere and doves everywhere and noise and sheep and people buying and selling things and people making money? And Jesus is saying, it says in Scripture, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you, you've just made it a den of robbers. You're just using it for your own business, for your own uh, benefit and and good. So Jesus drives away all these people who are making money in trade. But he's not only getting rid of them, he's going to get rid of the temple itself. Later that week, we read in Mark chapter 13 and verses 1 and 2, Jesus telling his disciples, and they're, they're still looking up and saying, teacher, teacher well look what magnificent stones, uh, what magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them's going to be thrown down. Jesus is prophesying the destruction again of another temple. In, and it happened. It was destroyed in a- AD 70, just a few years later by the Romans. And many people would say, well, that's a tragedy. Some Christians even today would say, well, the temple should be re-established in Jerusalem. There's a mosque in the place of it now, um, the Dome of the Rock. Well, it should be the temple again. Jesus knew it really didn't matter. Because by that time, by AD 70, do you know what? There was no need for the temple anymore. He'd already seen how the presence of God had departed. But by that time, there was no need for a temple with all of its sacrifices Because the church has become the temple of God. And there's no need for 255,000 lambs to be sacrificed anymore every single year because Jesus is the one perfect spotless lamb who was slain for the sins of the whole world. There's just no need for the temple anymore. All of the trading... And the noise and the people and the profit-making which was preventing the Gentiles coming and worshiping God, it was all done away with because instead Jesus' death and resurrection made a way for Gentiles of all nations to be included in God's family. Most of us would not be Jewish so we would be part of those people who have been made a way for so that we could repent and receive forgiveness of sins through Jesus' death. On a cross. And in and through the church now, Christ's body, the new temple, the whole earth is being filled with the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. That's what Jesus was doing. So he was coming and he was saying, This temple is going to be done away with. And it's going to be done away with because of my body and in my body and because of my death. He brought us back into the presence of God. He went through the sword barring the way into the garden. Isaiah 53 verse 8 says he was cut off from the land of the living. Yeah, he did it so that we might receive life. That's what Jesus was about. And as he goes into Jerusalem on this week before his death, that's what he's proclaiming. He's coming in as a li- as a lamb and he's going into the temple as a lion and he's cursing a fig tree and that's a visual Visible parable of the same thing. He's basically saying, look, this fig tree might look impressive, but really there's no fruit on it. It was his only destructive miracle, but it's designed to redirect his disciples to greater life, just as his death on the cross brought forth greater life. The temple was never going to bear fruit again. The Bible often talks about this. Dis- uh, God's judgment in terms of fig trees and withering. Jeremiah verse 8, chapter 8, verse 13 says, I'll take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There'll be no more grapes on the vine. There'll be no more figs on the tree. And their leaves will wither. What I've given them will be taken from them. So when, when the disciples and Jesus go back the next day and they point out that this fig tree's withered and they say to Jesus, Jesus is actually just redirecting them. What's he talking about? They're talking about, look at this, it's destroyed. It's a, what? It's terrible, Jesus, what you done. And Jesus is saying there's something greater coming. So he talks, what does he talk about? He starts to speak about mountains moving. Well, we've been reminding ourselves of that this morning, haven't we? We've been talking and praying and reminding ourselves of how Jesus can move mountains in our lives. Jesus begins to speak about faith. He begins to speak about prayer. He begins to speak about forgiveness of sins. He begins to speak about us forgiving each other. What Jesus is doing is he's talking about a new life in the spirit. And a life that's available to us today is saying, don't worry about the things that have gone because there's a far greater thing that has come. A new life, which is about more than just a formality. It's about more than just doing certain things on certain days. You know, people would go to the temple every year and they would do their duty and they would sacrifice their sheep or their doves or they would do whatever it was that they were doing and they would do it time and time again. And they would have to keep on doing it in certain festivals and certain years. And it's all done away with because we can just freely come into the presence of God. And we don't have to live that formal way. So there's no greater day than any other. Passover is no greater than any other day. Easter is no greater than any other day. Christmas Eve is no greater than any other day. Some people still just go to church on some special days, but there aren't any other special days. Even Sunday is not a special day. Paul warns us against turning back to this way of doing religion. He says in Galatians 4, he says, Now that you know God or rather unknown known by God, how is it you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you sometimes that I've wasted my effort on you. We can't settle for any less than Jesus has won for us. We're, we're not just going through the motions of religion. We can't settle for that. And, and it's not about putting on a show. And looking impressive on the outside, whether that's individually or as a church, and being fruitless on the inside. Jesus is calling us to true faith in the living God. He's calling us to a life where we can know we're forgiven, where we can forgive others, where we can walk in faith, where we can see God move and do miracles, where we can pray to our Father in heaven and know that we'll receive them. And we receive it all through Jesus, the lion and the lamb. The one who satisfied God's perfect justice through his death on the cross. The one who reached us with his boundless grace and his loving service of us. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. The only one who's worthy to make a way back to God for us. The only one who's able. The one who meekly died on the cross. The one who the Bible says will return again in power and majesty to judge the world and to whom every knee will bow. And he's the one we worship today. We can come freely into his presence. We can stand before him, and we can worship him, and we can know this life that he offers. So why don't we do that right now as we close, as we seek his love and his power and his life? Why don't the band come back up? I'll just pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you have made a much better way I thank you, Jesus, that you came and you suffered and you died meekly as a lamb, that you gave your life for us, the one true Passover lamb. And Lord, I thank you, though, that you don't lose who you are, that sense of kingly majesty, that passion for your church, that passion for justice, that zeal for your name and your glory that all nations will know you. Thank you, God, that we're included in that, ourselves even. Why don't we stand together? I'll hand you back to Brent. Thank you, Mark.